Hey everybody, welcome to the seventh episode of the Calvary Tabernacle Podcast. This is Michael Bryan. First off, yesterday was our friends and family day and it was a wonderful time. If you missed it, make sure make plans to be at our next event. It's going to be phenomenal. November 13th is homecoming. It'll be the 38th year of Calvary Tabernacle and we'll have two services, one at 10 a.m., the other at 2 p.m. with dinner in between with and Reverend Larry Hoyt will be preaching. It's going to be an awesome time of looking both to the past and remembering the things that Calvary Tabernacle has done to impact our community, while also looking to the future and the future impact that Calvary Tabernacle wants to have here in Knox County. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be phenomenal. Without much further ado, I want to go ahead and get into today's sermon. It is uh, this one's pretty near and dear to my heart. I uh, I am the, the speaker. So it's not over by yours truly. You'll turn with me to John chapter 11, verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone, Martha. The sister of him that was dead saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee? that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto him, Loose him, and let him go. I want to speak on this thought. It is not over. If you bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray, Lord, that you come into this place, Lord. Anoint me to speak the word that you'd have me to speak, Lord. And anoint our hearts and our ears, Lord, so that we may hear and, and put it to work in our lives, God. You are a great and faithful, Lord. God, and I praise you and thank you in your great and holy name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. When you work your way through the miracles of Jesus, you'll see him control different and varying aspects of the world around him. You find the miracle where he turned water into wine. There he showed his prowess as a winemaker. He showed himself to be a pretty good doctor when he healed the son of the nobleman, and he was the world's greatest fisherman when he told Simon Peter to put his nets on the other side of the boat. Speaking of fishermen, has any of y'all kept up with sports recently? I was talking to Mario about this earlier. The biggest scandal in the sports world right now is people cheating at fishing tournaments, which is insane. Like, it's a fishing tournament. Like, how do you cheat? You throw a, throw a line out, you catch something, you pull it back in. Like, it seems kind of impossible to cheat, but they'd catch them, and then they would cut up a different fish. And then, Brother McPhee, this is where it doesn't make sense to me. They would catch a fish, then they would catch another fish, then they would cut up the second fish, and they would wrap weights in the meat from the second fish and shove it down the mouth of the first fish. Which at that point, I'm like, why didn't you just keep the second fish? Like, you're trying to make a certain weight. You're going to a whole lot of extra work. But anyways, they got caught. So apparently professional fishing is a very scandalous sport. Jesus cast out demons, demonstrating his power over the spirit world. He cleansed lepers. He became the world's greatest weatherman when he controlled the storms. He performed the world's most un unsanitary and least invasive eye surgery ever known. 
He got the guy's tongue back from a cat so that he could start speaking again. He opened and he ran the first super buffet in history. But here he performs one of the most amazing and powerful miracles. He shows us that in his utmost power over something that was the most final of all destinations, he exercised control over death and the grave. Here he healed someone that was past healing. He awoke someone who was beyond awakening, and he reached someone who was beyond reaching. This isn't the first time that Jesus would raise people from the dead. In fact, he had raised up from the dead two other people prior to this occasion. The first occasion was the widow's son in the city of Nain. Luke 7 and 11 says, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. And when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead set up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And the second time he raised someone from the dead was the daughter of Jairus. Luke 8.41 says, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had only one daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. If you skip down to verse 49, it says, While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he come into the house, he suffereth no man to go in, save Peter, James, and John. And the mother and father of the maiden and all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded, her to, commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. How do these miracles differ from the raising up of Lazarus, you may ask? What separates these two miracles from it is the fact that they've largely been delegated to the footnotes of Jesus' ministry. I often forget about the story of the widow's son, and I typically only remember Jairus' daughter because it bookends the miracle of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. There's something about the circumstances of Lazarus that sets it apart. The miracle of Lazarus is the number seven. It's the seventh miracle recorded in the book of John, and it's the very last one that John would write about. It's the pinnacle, the climax, the climatic miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was only almost dead. This miracle was one that could not be denied by the Jewish leaders of the day. For the two earlier risings of the dead, they were not long dead. As a matter of fact, for one of them, the girl had just died. There's a movie for all y'all people that watch movies. You know, I'm, I'm obviously more holier than y'all, so I don't watch movies. I'm just kidding. I watched a movie the other day. Brother McPhee, it was a great movie. Would have went with your lesson this morning really well. It was uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. So uh, it was a great movie. I'd never watched it. And the whole time they're like talking, like I'm, I'm thinking like there has to be a bad point to this movie. But at the same time, I'm like, if I had the ability to build a machine that would rain food down from the heavens, I'd do it all over again. I mean, I know, it, I know how the end of the movie ends up, but, I mean, come on. I could go outside and spaghetti and meatballs could land on my house. Like, come on. I don't know if that's covered by insurance because I don't think it's an act of God, but 
I really wouldn't care. But anyways, in The Princess Bride, there's a man known as Miracle Max. And he's a magician. And there's a main character named Wesley. And Wesley gets tortured and he ends up dying. And his buddies, his sidekicks, his homies, his, uh, his partners in crime, they come and they bring Wesley to Miracle Max to see if he could bring him back to life. To which Miracle Max says he cannot raise the dead. But that Wesley's not dead, just mostly dead. There was still a chance of breathing again. I can almost imagine some of the naysayers after the two first miracles saying, well, well, you know, that, that lady's son, he wasn't really dead. He was just, he was in a deep sleep. Maybe it was a coma. And maybe Jairus' daughter, they were like, well, you know, she had some really bad Chinese food at the buffet last night. And she got sick and, and, and she passed out and it was like an allergic reaction. She wasn't dead. He just went in there and, you know, he had the latest thieves oil or essential oils or whatever it is y'all like to put on things. The only oil that goes in this body is peanut oil. Amen, hallelujah. That's what we use at Chick-fil-A. We also use canola oil, so I guess I partake of that too. But I could imagine there was some criticism. Jesus really didn't heal them. Maybe he just gave them a Snickers. They weren't being themselves. He gave them a Snickers. They were just hungry. Maybe he went down to the CVS at the corner of Bethlehem Road and Mount Olive Road and bought some smelling salts. He did something, but he didn't raise them from the dead. He couldn't have done that. That's, that's a power only God has. But here with Lazarus, we find that Lazarus had been in the grave for more than four days. He had started to stink. He was beyond waking. He was beyond the power of a candy bar. He was DOA. Nothing short of a miracle from the Almighty. Nothing short of the Creator God, the Lord Himself, was the only one capable to step into the scene and change the outcome. And that's exactly what God did. Jesus, in a show of His divine authority, stepped into His place as God here on earth. The Creator incarnate, the Lord wrapped in flesh and spoke to a four-day-old corpse and said, Lazarus, rise up and walk. To which death had no choice but to release its all-consuming, insatiable grasp. And out forth from the grave would come a dead man walking. It was a miracle that could not be denied. It had to be accepted and acknowledged for what it was. Death itself bowed at the power of Jesus, obeying His very command. Without the ability to take dominion over grave and death, Jesus would have been nothing. He would never have been acknowledged as God in the flesh. He would have just been another man, another misguided, smooth-talking, charismatic leader of a small Middle Eastern cult delegated to be forgotten as a footnote in the annals of religious and mainstream history. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What does that mean? Let me tell you. Without the ability of Jesus to call forth someone else out of the grave, he would have never himself walked out of the grave. If he would have never walked out of the grave, we have no hope of ever walking out of the grave. Without the resurrection, we have no hope of salvation. Death would truly have everlasting finality. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Without Jesus overcoming and destroying death in the grave, we would have no respite from it. Lost forever to the ensnarement and finality of our own death with no ability or path to escape it. But God. He defeated this enemy, stripping from it the power emphatically, totally and permanently. But because he called Lazarus out of the grave, because Jesus himself walked out of the grave, I know within myself that I too can stand and walk out of my grave. 
it's not over. There's a theme that's quite obvious within the 11th chapter of John, and that is that faith and believing is important. Within the chapter, you will find belief talked about eight different times. John 11, 1, 16. I have a whole lot of Bible verses in here. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And Jesus heard that he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days, still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. And his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered and said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he. And after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Lazarus, who lived in a town of Bethany, was dying. He was stricken with some terrible illness, and his sisters Mary and Martha were there with him. There's one song, Brother Trent. You're a great singer and a great worship leader. I'm going to go ahead and tell you there's one song you should never sing in church. At least you shouldn't lead, lead it. That one song where it talks about the alabaster box. No male should ever lead, sing lead on that song. It's, just, it's a beautiful song, but don't try it. Leave that to a woman. Because if a, if, if, if a guy gets up and starts singing about how he washed Jesus' feet with his tears and dried them with their hair, I'm going to be like, bro... What are you doing? Like, mm. with me, I'd, I'd like have to like start like using my beard because there ain't much hair up there. But anyways, just piece of advice. I don't know why I wanted to tell you that. Her and her sister Martha would send a messenger to Jesus, who most commentaries believe was at this time in Bethabara, a twenty-mile trip from Bethany, the place where Lazarus was taking his final breaths, while his sisters would search for a man that they believed could only heal their brother. The messenger's trip would have taken about a day in that time. He didn't have a Tesla or a Porsche to get him quickly to the next town, and the local enterprise was probably out of economy donkeys, so he had to walk. So one day later, Jesus hears about this plight of his friend, to which he sends a return message. He probably found it at a really bad card store. It was on the, maybe it was at the same CVS he purchased the smelling salts from, but the message was simply, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. It's kind of a terrible get well card to receive, a bad message. Hopefully it came with balloons and a teddy bear, or at the very least a gift card to the local Hebrews or Jehovah Java coffee shop. But probably not. Then Jesus proceeds to wait another two days to then head to Bethany, embarking on a one-day trip, arriving three days after the messenger had delivered the news, and four days after Lazarus' death. To break that timeline down, 
Day one, the messenger leaves and Lazarus dies. Day two, messenger delivers the message and Jesus sends a message back. Day three, Jesus chills in town because of the astronomical cancellation fees for his Airbnb or his hotel room. And then he decides to leave. Day four, Jesus arrives at Bethany. When he arrives, he's informed that Lazarus has died and he is presumed too late to make a difference in the situation. I often wonder at the thoughts of the disciples on this adventure. Here's this man that Jesus loves. There's quite obviously a very strong and close relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. Yet Jesus takes his sweet time going to them. Not only that, Jesus healed the ruler's son just by speaking a word. Why didn't he do the same for Lazarus, whom he loved? Better yet, why didn't he keep Lazarus, protect him from all harm and sickness? Surely if God loved him, he would only be blessed and prosper. The problem with that is God's love is not our idyllic and misconstrued version of love. His love is not a pampering love, but a perfecting love. The fact that we love him and he loves us is no guarantee that he will ever shelter us from the cares and hurts in life. Love and suffering are not incompatible, but in Jesus they're united as something to mold us towards perfection. The delay, the two-day delay. The believer's Bible commentary quite simply says that God's delay was not God's denial. We must understand that his ways are much higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and everything he does is in accordance not only to his divine plan, but to his timetable. He may not answer immediately because he's preparing and setting the stage for something greater, and not even his love for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha can make him speed up this plan. He's still an on-time God, even if he's late for our plans. So on the third day, Jesus proposes a trip to go see Lazarus, to which his disciples are alarmed because Jesus would be in danger. To which Jesus responds and he says, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. What he's saying there is, as long as a man works within his allotted time, he won't stumble and fall, because he can see where he's going and what he is doing. Meaning that Jesus was working on a divine time frame, and he was working within the will of God, so he knew nothing bad would happen to him until his allotted time had come. As long as we get within the will of God and stay within God's timing, we can take joy and peace in knowing that we cannot stumble due to a lack of light. Don't misunderstand me. You can still stumble, but it won't be because you couldn't see what you were doing. The disciples not only misunderstood the timeline, but they also misunderstood the mission. When Jesus said Lazarus is sleeping, they thought to themselves, cool, let the man sleep. I told you that that new nectar mattress would do wonders. Man, if they would have just went and got him a Tempur-Pedic, I mean, he would have been healed a long time ago. Sleep does the heart good. As a, as a large man who likes to sleep, I can attest to that. A couple months ago, Brother McPhee, me and Jamie went to, went to Nashville. I don't know why I like talking to you from the platform, but I, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you what it really is. I like talking to Brother McPhee, but I kind of go blank sometimes with people's names. And I look out, and there's like one face that stands out. And I'm like, I could say their name, but I can't think of their name right now. I'll be real with you. Jamie could be sitting on the front row, and I'd probably forget her name. So sometimes I'll put little markers in there, like, say this to Brother McPhee. So, so you're interacting with an audience. But uh, the other day, I say the other day, it's been a couple months now. Me and Jamie went to Nashville to go eat at a restaurant. And uh, we met up with a friend there. Y'all know him by Gizmo. 
I know him as Greg. But we met up with Greg, and we went and ate at this restaurant, and then we're like, what are we going to do? Like, where are we going to go? And, you know, in our spontaneousness, we were like, let's go to the furniture store. My parents on date nights go to Lowe's. Me, I apparently go to furniture stores. So me, Jamie, and Greg, I guess I can't call it a date night because Greg was there. But me, Jamie, and Greg load up, and we go to the furniture store, and we walk in. And, like, we weren't, we weren't intending to buy anything. Like, if you're going to go hang out with friends, like, why wouldn't you go to a furniture store? All you got to do is, like, go sit on couches, and what are they going to do, tell you to leave? You're like, no, I'm testing it out. Duh. Anyways, we go to the furniture store, and we're sitting on this couch. Speaking of that, I'm going to tell you a different funny story. When I was at Bible college, Trent, the best place to study, me and my friend Fitzy found out, was to go to Costco. Because they have the aisle with the recliners. And so we got a cart, and we went to one aisle of that, one end of that aisle, and we blocked it off. We got a cart, and we went to the other end, and we blocked it off. And we went and sat in the two middle recliners and went to sleep. We got a lot studying done that day. It was a great nap. But anyway, so me, Jamie, and Greg, we go to this furniture store. And uh, we're sitting on couches, and Jamie all of a sudden is like, you know what, I think I want to buy a new couch. I'm like, okay, cool, I don't care. It's a couch. I'm going to sleep. I don't care what it looks like. Well, so we start to walk through the store, and there was, this, there was this bed. And it was a king-size bed, but it was split. And the sales guy walks by. He goes, hey, I'm not trying to sell you anything, but just lay down on that real quick and push this one button. And then he turns and walks away, and I'm like, okay. I mean, I'll do it. So I laid down on the bed, and I pushed the button titled Zero Gravity. Ooh! I've never felt such an amazing thing in my life. Like, being wrapped in the arms of God couldn't have been that comfortable. I'm telling you, like, like it was like God himself came down and laid out a cloud and cocooned me in it. It was beautiful. I got up and I said, Jamie, lay down. She goes, I don't want to. I said, lay down. So she laid down on it, and she got up. And, you know, Jamie has back issues, so she was like, my back don't hurt. That feels amazing. I was like, I tell you, it's better than thieves oil, ain't it? But anyway, so we go to the front, and we're sitting there, and the salesman comes back by. He goes, how was it? And I was like, how much, and how do I get it in my house this weekend? And he tells us the price, and my jaw dropped. I don't know if any of y'all bought mattresses recently. They're about the price of what used cars were like 10 years ago. You know, you used to be able to buy a used pickup for 8000 Now that's what a mattress and bed set cost. I'm not going to say I spent that much money, but there is definitely a new bed set in my bedroom. And I sleep in zero gravity every night. It's amazing. But anyways, like, so I get that. Like, let the man sleep. It'll do him some good. Which Jesus, of course, had to get real blunt with him and tell him, dudes, Lazarus is dead. Like, do y'all not get that? And then he follows it up with an even stranger statement, basically saying, I'm glad I wasn't there. Which is kind of crazy, because if my friend was dying, I'd kind of want to be there, I think. But Jesus was saying here is, if I had been there, I may have not waited to heal him. But now, because I didn't heal him, I get to work an even greater miracle. I get to show you my true glory. I get to show you my true power. Y'all just thought y'all had seen something cool. Thomas Didymus Thomas means twin in Aramaic, and 
Didymus is the Greek equivalent, so Thomas Didymus really means twin-twin or twin-squared. As he's better known to us in modern Christianity as Doubting Thomas. But we as Christians are quite often the twin of Thomas, especially when we consider his unbelief and our often lack of belief in the power of God. And while Thomas was Doubting Thomas, and for that he gets a bad rap, Thomas was also dedicated and loyal because his statement there was, if you go, you're probably going to die. And let's go with you. It's going to be fun. I want a friend like Thomas. You could die serving Jesus, but let's go ahead and get on the road. It could end up badly, but I'm still going to follow him. Jesus, wherever it goes, I will go. Wherever you take me, I'm still going to follow. John eleven seventeen says, Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furloughs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. But whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which had come into the world. And when, when she had said so, she went her way and called Mary her sister, secretly saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her. And when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Died, Jesus therefore groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone, Martha. The sister of him that was dead saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Here we find the sisters of Lazarus. Every experience that we go through and every trial that we should have strengthens us and our faith in God. Mary and Martha are very different people. Martha was a worker, while Mary was contemplative and spent time at the feet of Jesus just soaking in his words. From there, we find that we need to be both. We cannot just spend all of our time at the feet of Jesus. We must also do the work of the Father. Due to this difference in personalities, we would expect Mary to sit in the house and weep while Martha would run to Jesus. We would have expected the sisters to have discussed the words that they would have with Jesus when he finally showed up. Especially seeing how the reaction was pretty much the same. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. What a disappointing statement. So full of faith. Faith that in the presence of God nothing could die. 
but disappointment and the utter lack of the presence of Jesus in their time of need. What big words of immense crushing disappointment. If only you had been here. They had faith in Jesus as a healer, but not as one who could breathe life back into Lazarus. They didn't believe in Jesus as the resurrection. They only believed in him as the life. This little amount of faith, though, was all that Jesus needed to respond with a promise of the resurrection of Lazarus. To which Martha misunderstood. Jesus talking about the immediate resurrection and Martha thinking about the future resurrection in the last days. Here we have the fifth of the seven I am statements that Jesus would make. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. In this statement, Jesus would transform the doctrine of resurrection. Wearsby's new commentary, or commentary on the New Testament says, to begin with, he brought the doctrine of resurrection out of the shadows and into the light. The Old Testament revelation about death and resurrection is not clear or complete. It is, as it were, in the shadows. In fact, some passages in Psalms and Ecclesiastes would almost make one believe that death is the end and there's no hope beyond the grave. Some false teachers like to use those passages, but they ignore the clear teachings found in the New Testament. After all, it was not David or Solomon who brought life and immortality to light through gospel, but Jesus Christ. By his teachings, his miracles, and his resurrection, Jesus clearly taught the resurrection of the human body. He has declared once and for all that death is real, but there's still life after the grave. And that the body will one day be raised by the power of God. He transformed this doctrine in a second way. He took all the doctrines of the Bible out of the Bible and put them into a person, himself. He said, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. I'm everything. While we thank God for what the Bible teaches us, we realize that we're saved not by words on a page, but by the Redeemer of the Old Testament, by Jesus Christ, not by doctrine written in a book. When we know Him by faith, we need not fear the shadow of death. When you're sick, you want a doctor. If you're in trouble with the law, you want a lawyer. You don't want a medical textbook or a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy death, you don't really just want the Bible. You want a Savior. You don't just want doctrine. You want God Himself. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. When you belong to Him, you have all you will ever need in life, death, time, and eternity. Perhaps the greatest transformation that Jesus ever did was he moved the promise of the resurrection from the future to the present. Martha was looking towards the future knowing that one day Lazarus would rise again and she would see him, not believing that it could be today. Her friends were looking to the past saying Jesus could have prevented this, but he wasn't here. It's over. But Jesus was trying to center their attention on the present, here, now. Where Jesus is, there is the ability for immediate and present resurrection. Jesus reaffirms that believers one day would be raised from the dead. He asks Martha a simple question, do you believe? To which Martha affirms her faith using three separate titles for Jesus. Jesus, Lord, Jesus Christ or Messiah, and Son of God. Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. These words, I'm not an English major. So, Sister Lindsay, I may be wrong. There you go, I remembered another name. But we find these words in the present perfect tense, indicating that she presently believes and is settled in her belief in him. To loosely translate her statement, she said, I believe and I will continue to believe. Having dealt with Martha's faith, he now has to deal with Mary. So Martha sins for Mary. Saying, the master comes and wants to see you, to which Mary gets up and she goes. 
And all the Jewish friends that are there in the house think that Mary is going to the grave to weep and mourn. They go with her. They follow her to the tomb. Imagine their surprise when they discover she's not gone to mourn, but instead is meeting with Jesus. We find Mary three times in Scripture, and every single time she's found at the feet of Jesus. She sat at his feet and listened to his words. She fell at his feet and poured out her sorrow, and then sat at his feet and worshipped him, washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. In those three times, Mary has one sentence, and it's ten words long. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Here she echoes the cry and sorrow of her sister, showing faith in God as a healer, but a crushing sorrow at the big if. Mary, the introspective, sensitive, and caring one, the worshiper, the one who simply basked in the presence of God in flesh, is simply overcome and stricken with immense grief and emotion. She begins to weep, to which her friends join in, weeping and lamenting. To which Jesus is torn within and he's moved to indignation. He's indignant and angry at the ravages of sin that have altered his creation. Death is the enemy and Satan has used fear of it as a terrible weapon. Jesus was angry, not really because Lazarus had died. He was angry because way back when in a garden, a human being sinned and it caused a fall of man. God was angry because this creation that he meant something great for is now reduced to this. Jesus is often a mystery in his incarnation. In his divine knowledge of things, he knew Lazarus had died, yet had to ask where the body lay. God will never use supernatural means when the natural will work just as well. Asking where he is, where is Lazarus? Where did you lay, my friend? They take him to the grave, and here we find the most heartbreaking and crushing verse ever written. Famous for being the shortest verse in the Bible, yet quite possibly the most full of sorrow and hurt. It says simply, Jesus wept. This weeping that we find was a silent weeping. A noiseless, heartbroken sob for a friend. Not the loud lamentations of the mourners. The word used here to describe his weeping is not found anywhere else in Scripture. At this moment, Jesus is weeping out of a pain that we never find him experience anywhere else. You can ask the question, why did Jesus weep? All while knowing that he would raise Lazarus from the dead in mere minutes. The answer is found in the complex duality of the Christ. He was 100% man and 100% God. Here, his humanity shows through. He's gone through our human experiences. He's felt and dealt with the same emotions we've had. In being both perfect God and perfect man, he suffered our deepest hurts deeper than we ever can. And he's experienced our greatest joys greater than we ever could. Isaiah 53 and 3 says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We can see in the tears the tragedy of sin and also the glory of heaven. Perhaps Jesus was weeping for Lazarus as well as the sisters because he knew that he was about to call his friend back from heaven, back to a wicked world where one day he would have to die again. Jesus himself had come down and robed himself in flesh to walk this earth. He knew what Lazarus was about to leave behind. The spectators see the tears and they think to themselves, he truly did love Lazarus. While others think, of, think Jesus had loved Lazarus so much, why on earth would he let him die? Perhaps they too were looking at Jesus thinking, look, Jesus weeps. He weeps because he's too late. There's nothing he can do to help Lazarus now. It's over. You missed it. We can't blame him. Even the disciples didn't think that Jesus could raise him from the dead. Only one person had affirmed and proclaimed her faith, and it was Martha. 
But even when her faith wavered when Jesus said, open the tomb. With disbelief, she replied, open the tomb. By now he stinks. Don't you realize, God, he's been dead for four days? To which God has to remind her of the message he had sent three days before. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. True faith relies on God's promises and therefore releases his power. Martha relented and the stone rolls away. John eleven forty one says, And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that thou may believe that thou hast sent me. When he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto him, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Jesus would pause to pray. Some people wonder why. I'll go ahead and tell you, this prayer was for the benefit of those around him. Jesus being God and one with God, knows that he has no need to verbally pray to himself. He wanted all the unbelievers to know that it was God who had sent him, and it was through himself that he was about to work. One Puritan writer once said, Jesus had to name Lazarus, or else he would have cleared the whole cemetery. Jesus called out Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. To which Lazarus emerges from the grave. Seeing how Lazarus was bound both hand and foot, wrapped in grave clothes, I presume he was probably unable to walk. So some people think maybe Lazarus was carried from the tomb by the power of God. However he came out, whether he was able to walk or not, it was an unquestionable miracle. Even the most hostile of spectators could not dare deny it. Wearsby says that the experience of Lazarus is a good illustration of what happens to a sinner when he trusts the Savior. Lazarus was dead, likewise all sinners are dead. He was decayed because decay and death go together. All lost people are spiritually dead and some are more decayed than others, but no one can be more dead than another. Lazarus was raised from the dead by the power of God and all who trust in Christ have been given new life and lifted from the graveyard of sin. Lazarus was set free from the grave clothes and given new liberty. You find him seated at the table of Christ and born again. Believers will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. It is not over. The story's not finished, it's simply just beginning. With the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus showed that with absolute finality and without a doubt, He had all control over the grave. He was God, He is God, and He will continue to be God. It is not over. I'm coming to a close. Gotta hurry up. I, I think Mitch has to go preach somewhere, so I don't want to keep him here too long. It's not over, and it's not finished. Like Mary and Martha, some of us walk into church services week after week, month after month, year after year, thinking to ourselves, God, if only. God, if only you had been there. If only you had showed up. God, if you had only kept me. God, if only you had been there to keep me from doing that. God, if you had spared me this. God, if you had spared me that. God, if you would have healed my father. God, if you would have healed my brother. God, if you would have been there, maybe my calling would be intact. Maybe I'd still be able to feel you. Maybe I wouldn't be bitter. Maybe I wouldn't need healing. Maybe I wouldn't be going through this and maybe I wouldn't be going through that. Maybe I would still be free from addictions. Maybe I would still be free from my personal baggage. Maybe I would still be spiritually alive. If only you had shown up. 
I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter what you've gone through, what has happened, what you're dealing with, and what you're struggling with. It doesn't matter what your baggage is today, whether it's sin, shame, scars, hurt, or even just disbelief. It matters not whether it's emotional, physical, or mental. I'm here to tell you right now that there is a God who is ready to step into the room. He's ready to step into your situation. Like with Jairus' daughter, you too can come back to life and walk out the door. Like Lazarus, you can come forth out of the grave if only you're willing to let God step into the situation. When God steps into a room, nothing else matters. Everything stops when He steps into the room. Your future, your past, your present are all about to change when He steps in. Your past sin is irrelevant. Your shame is no longer. Your addiction loses its hold and sickness has to flee when the Almighty steps into the room. All my life I've heard about people who think God can't use them. For whatever reason it is, they think and feel that God can never overlook their past, their sin, their shame. It, it honestly, Sister Brittany, it made me a little mad this morning. I was driving to church and I was thinking how on earth I was going to end this sermon. And I was, I was talking to myself and I got a little mad because you see there was a God who loved you so much. There was a God who loved me so much that he came down from heaven and wrapped himself in earthly garments and in humanity. And then he would go and he would die on a cross for you and me to save us from our sins. And we think he can't deliver us. We think he can't use us. We're too far gone. Well, let me tell you, there was a God who never sinned who was immaculate. And he died for you so that you can have a future. It's not over. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And his plans are way higher than our, thought, than our plans. Anything he wants to do, he can and he will do. He's an incarnate God. He was before the very beginning of time. He will be after eternity. He still is right now. The Bible tells me he's the Alpha and he's the Omega and everything in between. He was the first and he was the last. He is also here in the now. When the indescribable, undeniable, all-powerful, almighty, holy, righteous, and wonderful God steps into the situation, nothing that ever happened in your past matters and nothing that will ever matter in the future, but only if you allow Him to work. If y'all stand with me. I'm here to tell you that if you came to this service today dealing with some baggage, if you came to this service today dealing with the ramifications of past choices and past sins, if you came into this service feeling spiritually dead, if you came today broken and not sure how you're going to carry on, I'm here to tell you there's a God who's willing to step in. There's a God waiting at the door, waiting to enter into your heart and life and transform you. There's a God willing to take control and charge of the situation. All you have to do is let go of your past, let go of the baggage. All you have to do is let, God, let go and let God. Lazarus, come forth and let go of the grave clothes. It isn't over. There's still a future for you. God still has plans for you. He still has promises that are just for you. Promises to heal you, to forgive you, to deliver you, to keep you, to give you a better end than what a life of sin could ever give you. I remember, Brother Trent, I began to think about this when you were talking about your father. Y'all have heard the story of my brother. The, uh, the first time my brother ever, first time he almost died, we went to the hospital and he had had a seizure at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they had found him about 8 o'clock that night. And he had laid there on the floor. And I remember them calling us in and saying, come to the hospital. 
He's going to die. It's over. He's brain dead. And I remember going in and on the drive there, I was praying, God, if it's your will, then you do it. Mariel wasn't going to make you cry, but God, if it's your will, then you're going to do whatever it is you plan to do. And nothing I can say to you in this prayer is going to change that. And I remember going to the hot, the hot, not the hotel, the hospital room. And I remember walking in and he's just laying there with tubes running in and out of him. And I went home that night and I came back the next day and it was the same thing. And they said, you know, he's, he's not going to make it. He's going to die. It's over. Y'all can say y'all's goodbyes. And so we did. And I went home and I prayed again. And I, I don't remember, I think it was two or three days. My mom called me and she said, Michael, you need to get up here to the hospital right now. I walked into the room and there was my brother sitting in the bed. And he started talking to me. He knew who I was. I hadn't had a conversation with him that was coherent in two or three years at this point. He knew who I was and we began to talk about things. God, if your will will be done. When Jesus steps into a room, he still has a plan. When everything seems lost and it all seems to be over, there's still a plan. There's still a God who is working it all out for you and for me. Like Jairus' daughter, when Jesus stepped into the room with a problem, he's the only solution you'll ever need. Acts 4 and 12 tells me there's neither salvation in any other name. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby I can be saved. In Acts 2, they ask the question, men and brethren, how can we be saved? And Peter tells them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of your sins. It's not over. There's still a future. He still has a plan to get you out of your sin and out of the wickedness of humanity. He still has a plan for you. These altars are open if you'd like to come. Isn't it amazing how, no matter what happens in our life, God still has a plan for us and He still has a purpose for us. And we can always find ourselves back within the will of God. If you want to learn more, or if maybe you want to find out about the future that God may have for your life, contact us at calvarytabernaclewalton.com or on Facebook or Instagram, Calvary Tabernacle Walton. We'd love to hear from you. love to talk to you. Before we let, let you go, I want to once again remind you of homecoming happening November 13th. We'd love to see you there. Thank you. God bless.